All right, good morning, fellowship. How's everybody doing? You guys good? Hey, let's stand up. I'm gonna scooch in, and we're gonna worship together this morning, okay? Let's do it.
Hey, good morning, fellowship family. Grab a seat. It is good to worship with you today. Always enjoy being with my church family and worshiping. Beautiful day the Lord has given us uh, to celebrate him. And uh, my name is Doug, and I get to work with Global Outreach. Uh, this is Kyle. He works with student ministry. We don't get to see him a lot, so everybody say hi to Kyle. Good morning. Uh, yeah. Good morning, friends. Thanks, Doug. Hey, um, <laughs> if you... If you are with us for the very first time or just one of the first few times you've been with us, let me just say you are a welcome guest. We are so honored that you have chosen to come and spend this time with us. And here's what we want for you. We don't want anything from you. We just want this for you. We want this to be a place where you can explore and engage with God, with his word, and with his people. And that's it. So we want you, if you're a guest here, we just want you to, to participate to whatever degree you're comfortable, to sit back and just enjoy being with God's people, worshiping him together. In our mission statement, we talk about being people who know and express the authentic Christ to Northwest Arkansas and the world. Uh, and Because we believe that God wants to change our city through us, and we believe that God wants to change the world through us. And we've got some folks who are going to be doing a really intentional uh, effort to do that over the next couple of weeks, going on some trips to, to just go and, and be the hands and feet of Jesus and to share the gospel. And so I want to tell you a little bit about why we do these trips, because I want you to understand uh, kind of what we, our thinking is behind. First of all, we do these trips for the sake of the ones we're going to. It is our prayer and our heart's desire that the people that we go to with these trips will encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they will encounter his love and his goodness and his kindness and his grace through his people, and that they will come into his kingdom. We just believe that God wants to bring people into his kingdom through our obedience of going and just taking the gospel and the love of Jesus with us. But we also do this for the sake of the ones going. Because we believe that when you and I go through the effort to go someplace that's unfamiliar and to, to live and, and spend some time in a place that's uncomfortable, and a lot of our mission trips are that way, they're uncomfortable, it reminds us that life's not all about us, is it? And it gets our vision up and we realize that now we can begin to see the world the way Jesus sees it. And that will transform us. And so we believe that these trips are an opportunity for people who know Jesus Christ to grow in their discipleship, to become disciples, and then to be disciples. And so that's why we do these things. And Kyle, tell us more about what they're gonna be doing on these trips. Happy to, Doug. Uh, <clears throat> if you can see the map behind me, we have people from Fellowship Bentonville going all over the US and the world this spring break. And um, I'm especially proud of our students because they're choosing to give their, their week off up to go and, and grow and learn and serve in many, many different places across the U.S. and the world. Many of these students have been raising support, gathering prayer partners, sitting through trainings, turning in paperwork, updating passports, um, all to get ready for these trips. And that's not actually why I'm proud of them, even though it is a decent amount of work. I'm proud of our students because they are setting the tone globally and locally as to, to what it looks like to function as the church and be sent to, to the nations. Um, I'm, I'm really, really excited about what I get to watch the Lord bring our students into as they experience his empowering presence on these spring break trips. 
And um, each of the trips, they look a little bit differently. Our seventh and eighth grade trips, they primarily focus on uh, character development, following Jesus, and community and life of a cell group. And then I have a a short list, actually, of what our other trips are, uh, so I don't forget anybody. But once our students hit ninth grade, they get to choose between discipleship training trips, inner city trips partnering with local ministries in cities other than Bentonville, uh, serving church plants in different cities and contexts than our own, First contact evangelism with refugees and families of other faiths and working with former addicts and trafficked men and women in, uh, in the jungles, in a, at a discipleship school in the jungle. And the strategy is very, very simple. We want to see students engaging life with Jesus at a local level, in their cell groups and in their schools and here on Sunday, um, all the way to a global level as they learn uh, to follow Jesus into his great commission. And what gets me really, really excited about what we get to do on spring break is you, Fellowship Bentonville, you are sending 163 students and cell group leaders on these trips over spring break, which I just think is really cool. And so, I mean, if you're going on a trip, y'all make, make a little bit of noise if you're, if you're sitting over here and you're going on a spring break trip. Okay, so you hear some of them. Uh, if you add in the other congregations, so Fayetteville, Springdale, Rogers, and Mosaic students, Fellowship as a whole is sending 473 students out over spring break, which is just so compelling. And um, we, are, we are really proud of them. And so my, my ask from you this morning is that you would just commit to pray. Just pray the next couple of weeks as we get ready to go, um, and then even as we go over spring break. Pray for uh, just a ton of life change, that students uh, who, who may be walking with, with Jesus at one level of intimacy actually grow in depth of relationship with him. Pray for safety. That's a no-brainer. We want our kids to be safe. Uh, I want to bring them all home to their moms and dads. And, uh, and also pray that, <clears throat> pray that they will experience a deeper love of Jesus and that those that they serve with or serve, uh, minister to or serve around will come into, maybe for the first time, a uh, relationship with, with their God and their creator um, for the first time on one of these trips. And so that's, that's my prayer for these trips. And I just ask that you, you would pray for us the next couple of weeks. And... Um, Speaking of, of prayer and bad transitions, Doug, will you pray for us? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. Before we pray, I also want to mention we've got uh, about 20 folks that are going, uh, adults that are going to the Amazon. Uh, our very own Brian Johnson is leading that trip, and uh, we're just excited about that as well. Hey, if you are going on one of these trips, would you stand so we can just see, see who we're praying for? Students, adults, anybody going on one of these trips? All right, you see the folks that are going. All right, now the rest of you, let's stand and let's pray for these folks. Lord Jesus, we do this because you are worthy. You are worthy to receive the honor and the glory and the praise and the adoration and the worship of every creature. And Lord, we do this because we look forward to that picture that we see in Revelation of a time where every tribe and tongue and nation and people group and every ethnic group and every age will be represented around the throne, praising and worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we do pray for these that are going on these trips. We ask that you just work in their hearts to do the work, whatever it is that you wanna do in them and through them. Lord, we pray for safety as they travel. We pray for your provision for everything that that comes up. 
Lord, we pray that people will embrace you and know you as a, the way we know you and love you because we've been faithful and obedient just to go. Now, Lord, as we move into this, the rest of this time of worship, we do so knowing this is just a small taste of what it's going to be like around that throne in heaven. And so, Lord, we just honor and praise and worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen.
so good to sing it with you as the church and declaring that. Whew. It was about 125 years ago that a revival broke out in Wales that sent these missionaries into Northeast India to an unreachable tribe. Uh, they were known as the headhunters. They were barbaric and uh, these missionaries got sent and they shared the gospel with this, with this tribe and a lot of them wanted nothing to do with it, but there was one family, a father, a mother, and, and uh, two sons that accepted the hope of Christ and Jesus, the gospel that these missionaries came to share. Well, the tribe, they wanted nothing to do with it. The tribal leaders, they, they brought them to the center of the village and they gave them a choice. They said, either turn back from this Jesus, renounce your faith, or you will be killed. Or you'll die. 
the father, he turned to the tribal chief and he said, we have decided to follow Jesus and there's no turning back. And the tribal chief, he ordered his archers to strike his family down with arrows. As you can imagine, with tears in his eyes, he said, though none go with me, I still will follow. There's no turning back. And this tribal chief gives him one more chance to, to, to live, spare his life. He says, turn from Jesus, and we'll spare your life. And he said, the world, the cross before me, the world behind me, there's no turning back. And they put the man to death. And in that moment, this tribal chief, he sits there. And the, and the story goes, he's gripped by Jesus in that moment, by the Holy Spirit. And the tribal chief, he looks around and he says, I too want to belong to this God who's worthy of this. And the story goes that revival broke out in the village. And everyone coming to know Jesus, all from the step of faith. Isn't that just how God works? We've seen it all through Daniel and Esther, how God turns evil for good in the story of faith. It said, it's quoted, one of the tribe members uh, is quoted saying, we're no longer headhunters, we're fisher of men. This is a true story, this is real, this is happening. I had a couple uh, in the first service come up to me and said, I'm so encouraged that you shared that story. We have family in that tribe. And God's moving. And I thought, what better song could we sing this morning? And I have decided to follow Jesus almost hand in hand, saying no matter the cost, God, enable us to live in faith this way. Can we sing this together? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. That's our, our prayer, our hope, our desire this morning. God, that no matter the consequences that may be in front of us, that 
our eyes would be so fixed on you and who you are that would cause us to follow you into the midst of pain, darkness, or joy, or whatever you have before us, that our lives would be so transformed by you, God. I know there's so many things that are brought into uh, a room this morning, God, with pain and sorrow, with, with joy and with hope, with all the different stories and the ways that you're working in and through us, God, and I ask that you would meet us in those moments, that you would comfort us as you say you do, that you would bind up our wounds, that we would see with faith who you are. Even in this Old Testament story, God, that we would see the majesty of who you are and how it applies and impacts every aspect of our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, I really do look forward to the days where we get to learn and grow together in God's word, but especially first Sundays, my people over here. We love having seventh through 12th graders in here with us. And so uh, if you are new, we are in a series on uh, Esther and Daniel. This is week nine of 12. And so there's still a, a lot to be learned. Don't feel like you have to go catch up on everything. Uh, God's word, uh, I believe, will speak to us uh, this morning. But we are in Daniel chapter six. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open there so you can underline and take notes, but I'll also have stuff on the screen. Uh, this is going to be for sure the most famous story in the book of Daniel, uh, arguably one of the more famous and popular in the Old Testament. Daniel 6, y'all know what it is? The lions, right? Uh, there, there's a lot to this story. Like a lot of other Old Testament stories, this would be a great movie with different aspects. There's an underdog with a unlikely rise to power, jealousy leading to a coup, uh, unjust punishment, a reversal of destruction, and lions. Who doesn't like that aspect of it, right? Uh, lions are a common image uh, throughout the Bible, but even in the New Testament, we see six references in the book of Revelation. There's a few more sprinkled into other New Testament uh, books. The Messiah is compared to a lion. Satan, 1 Peter 5.8, is compared to a lion prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So they're powerful animals who bring powerful imagery, and we'll see how they connect uh, some things in here as well. But before we do, need some context for Daniel chapter 6. So here's what Mark closed with uh, last week, just to kind of help us know where we're at. Daniel is promised by uh, Belshazzar a promotion. Okay, he's found favor with this guy. He's promised to become one of the high officials and then that same night that he's promised that, Belshazzar is killed. So you've got Daniel in this moment where he's probably wondering, all right, what's coming after this? So there's a new ruler, Darius, who steps in uh, to take over leadership over uh, Babylonia. He is a Mede, so he's part of this Medo-Persian empire that now uh, takes over. And he's going to step in, and I'm sure some things are going to change. We don't know a ton about this guy. In fact, this is one of the more mysterious aspects of the book of Daniel that I don't have time to go into and give you all the like 12 possibilities of who this person is, but we do know that he is ruling over the area of Babylon now. He is taken over. And so he comes in, and one of the first things that he does is he sets up 120 satraps. These are going to be kind of localized governors of certain areas and then three high officials that those 120 report to. And it says, somewhat by surprise, that Daniel's one of them, right? And not only that, 
Daniel comes in and there's a promise too that he's gonna be set over the whole kingdom. So even get more responsibility. Now, what's weird about this? The best context I could think of, and it's not perfect, but for us, college football or NFL football, all right? Whenever a new coach comes in because a coach gets fired, a head coach, you expect all of the assistants to get wiped out too, right? They're gonna bring in this new leadership and it takes something really special for someone to survive that, whether it's they've got a proven record of success maybe in their general area that they coach or maybe they have a key relationship with the players or something like that. And so somewhat similarly, you've got this new reign, this new kingdom, but even more than that, this new king, this new nation, this new government, this new headquarters, new values, all of that. Yet not only does Daniel sustain that and get the position that the previous person had told him he would get, but like it shows, there's, a, there's evidence that he's gonna go even higher. How? There must have been something that Darius admired about Daniel, something about his character or his wisdom that helped Darius see past the religious differences, the racial differences, the age differences, to say, I need this guy as part of my leadership team. So that's what happens, but not everyone was super stoked about this idea. You've got the rest of the the satraps and the other two officials that begin this coup, this conspiracy to try to get Daniel out of leadership. Why? Most obvious to me is strictly from a promotion standpoint. If he's taking this high spot or any leadership spot, he's preventing them from being able to move up. So if they get rid of him, more responsibility for them. Or perhaps it has to do with age or race. You'll, you'll see his race brought up uh, later on in the chapter as a, as a problem in their eyes. And in their attempt to get him out, notice not only could they not find any fault in his government leadership, not part of his life, they couldn't find error or fault in him at all. They're looking at him going, what is wrong with this dude? We can't find any dirt on him unless we can find it in connection with the law of his God. Maybe we can exploit his worship of Yahweh. That means to me that his character, his leadership, his wisdom, like everything about him was so outstanding and impressive, which makes me think that the real reason, at least one of them, that maybe they wanted him out of this position is because his integrity wouldn't allow for them to have the political corruption that they may want being in those high positions. And so like the Babylonian officials with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're gonna see an attempt to exploit the worship of Yahweh as a weakness and complete disrespect for the current kingdom. So they develop this plot and they go to the king with this plot and they tell him, hey, king, Darius, all the high officials in the kingdom, all of them, satraps, officials, we've all agreed that you should create this this edict to sign this decree that whoever makes any petition to any man or God that's not you they should die. And we should do this for 30 days and we'll throw them into a den of lions. So let's examine the manipulation here. Number one, this is an outright lie. Why? Daniel is an official. It doesn't seem that he's agreeing to this. He would never agree to saying, I'm not going to worship Yahweh. So they're lying from the beginning, but also there's a high emotional intelligence for them to know how to sway 
the ruler through his ego. So they implement this, you know, 30-day trial. Let's find the dissenters, the nonconformists, those who truly don't have your back. And it seems this is human power and leadership on full display, that anyone who doesn't worship me should die, should go away. Like, I don't want anything to do with them. So at first, you could say this is an example of humanism where uh, we as humans put ourselves over the divine to the point of worship. And that may be true, but to give Darius the benefit of the doubt, because we're gonna see some really cool things about him later, I wonder if he says yes because he's told Daniel agreed to this and he respects him so much. And if they're saying all the officials agreed, well, if Daniel wants this, then let's do it. So the problem is under Persian law, when he signs this, it can't be undone. And he's even bound to it. And so we see the punishment is that it's different from the Babylonians. They killed people through fire, but the Persians worship fire, so their capital punishment is through lions. What do we know about fierce felines in northwest Arkansas, right? Uh, I used to own one. This is Sugar Bear. She is our 20-pound cat. Spoiler, she's dead. Um, Yeah, no longer with us. God rest her soul. That doesn't exist. But this is her, and uh, this is about as close as I get to understanding what a fierce cat is like, unless, you know, maybe we go to the zoo. But I don't have to tell you this, but I will. These are very different animals, right? Lions are massive and powerful much bigger than us. These are not animals that you would want to pet or be around, especially in a closed room where you can't get out. So part of this process of capital punishment was like, there's no way you're going to escape. You get thrown in with these guys, you will die. And get this, Daniel knows that. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, I underlined this in my Bible. This is something that he knew Okay, and when we see his actions, it's like, really? He knew this had been signed. He knew what the consequences were. And so with this knowledge, he goes to his house, opens up the windows to Jerusalem, gets on his knees, just like he had done previously three times a day, and he prays and he petitions to God, the very thing that will get him killed if he's found out. He doesn't change. He did just what his faithful walk with the Lord had told him to do three times a day on his knees towards Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? This is where he was taken from 70 years ago. And he knew the prophecy that God said, I'm going to return you. I'm gonna return my people back there. And so I just see him pleading like, God, let this be the day that you take us back to the land that we can rebuild. Let this be the day. And just so you know, we are on the cusp of this. It would happen very soon after this story. So the coward in me is like, Daniel, just take a 30-day break. Just close your windows if you want to keep praying. Like, there are so many options here for you to still, like, follow God but survive. Like, why don't you just, just hide it a little bit, something? But I don't think his character and integrity would allow him to do that. This is who he was, and this is what he did. A few chapters earlier, we saw that Daniel's three friends would not do what they were told to do, which was to bow down. Here, Daniel is doing what he's told not to do. And both of them were out of loyalty to Yahweh. When I read through this scene, this, this, this scene of him in this room, no one else is in there. It reminds me of this quote that Alex and I actually have in our room. This is the first thing that we see 
when we wake up. And it says this, do not believe the lie that you can live off of your gifts and not do the hard work of character formation. And the reason it reminds me of that is because up until this point, we've seen the outward expression of Daniel and his faith and his faithfulness, right? The way in which he lives. But here we learn the inner secret, that despite the rigorous demands of being a high-level executive in this system, he retreats to his home three times a day, just as he's always done, and he prays. Not some outward attempt at advancement within the kingdom, but an inward attempt to stay close to the source of life and to commune with the Lord through prayer. This is what set him apart. Let's, let's not glance over that. The people of that day may not have known that, that this is what set him apart, but this is it. Whatever God was doing in that room three times a day was transforming his whole life so that people were noticing something was different about this guy. And in this, this story, Daniel is faced with what we might call a dichotomous decision. So it's two, there's only two options. It's either do bow down to people other than Darius and get killed or don't. That's it. And it makes me think of even us living today that sometimes we face situations like this where we are having to choose, do we follow Jesus and the laws that he commands, the life that he commands of us, or do we obey authority? Right? You, you heard an example of that, that that Jared shared with us about the tribe in India. And while ours may not be that extreme, sometimes we may face situations like this where we are forced to choose. And as followers of Jesus, we cannot compromise. We have to stay true to, to who Jesus has called us to be and what our life looks like as we follow him. But don't assume every decision that's put in front of you as an either or is actually an either or. In fact, a lot of times we can follow Jesus and obey authority, probably more often than not. We can follow Jesus and be a good citizen within our community. We can follow Jesus and be good neighbors to those who are different than us. We can follow Jesus and actually impact our workplace and be an influence there, both for God and for the business or whatever we're in. Often we can do both. And we have to learn, this is one of the secrets of being a follower of Jesus in 2023. We have to learn how to discern those moments and how we actually navigate navigate that. Jesus did it. I mean, a classic example is when he's asked about taxes, and basically he's pitted with two decisions. Should you pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus, in his wisdom, says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. And he finds a way to live within the system while still honoring his father. And we're gonna be asked to do certain things like that too. Now, the story that we're reading of Daniel, though, he is asked to choose. He has to choose. And so he does. And when they figure this out, when they catch him, they're going to go to the king and they're going to confirm, king, did you actually sign this thing into law? Like, is it official? Because they see Daniel praying, they see him petitioning, they got him. And the king says, yeah, yeah. Right? He says, like, I did. They go, great. That guy that you love, Daniel, they don't call him one of the three officials. What do they call him? Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, he's a Jew. He has disobeyed you. And now you have to kill him, one of your favorite people. And we notice this does not sit well at all. 
when you think back to Nebuchadnezzar, when he found out someone had disobeyed, what did he want? He wanted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, annihilated. Let's heat the furnace seven times hotter. Darius seems to be more frustrated with himself. He's pleading, trying to find a way out to deliver Daniel. He wants to rescue them. And the official's like, no, 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 no. You signed this. This has to happen. So Darius is forced to give the command to throw Daniel into this lion's den where he is going to be executed and be eaten alive. But before he does, notice what he does here. He appeals to Yahweh. You might even say he's petitioning to Daniel or Yahweh by saying, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. He's at risk of breaking the own edict that got Daniel thrown in there and he would be following him. What changed? What changed in this man to go from everybody should worship me, I like that idea, to, oh, I pray that Yahweh delivers you. He's the one of power. I can't think of anything else except the outstanding character and integrity of an upright citizen and friend that he witnessed and saw something is different about this guy. Notice, he can't eat or sleep all night. Sleep fled from him. He's fasting. And so in an odd twist, we find out Daniel's night in the midst of these wild animals is much more peaceful than that of Darius in royal luxury. He cannot sleep because of what's happening internally as he thinks about what's happening to Daniel. What do we know about the lion's den? This is a picture we would often see depicted, right? Especially uh, as kids. What do we know? It's probably a pit in the ground that you're thrown into or pulled up out of. So probably no stairs or way to enter. So when you're in there, you don't come out. Like you you die in there. Do you notice anything wrong? There's probably multiple things wrong about this picture. But one obvious one for me, having read the story, that does not look like a man in his mid-80s. Right? When you go back to Daniel 1.21, we see it's predicted that he's gonna, he's gonna uh, age in this kingdom, even into the next kingdom. And so that's probably what he is. I don't think this is what they look like. In fact, if you're in your mid-80s, would you just please, st- I'm just kidding. I'm not gonna make you do that. <laughs> I learned my lesson a couple weeks ago. Some 65-year-olds felt persecuted that I asked them to stand up. So not gonna do that. But if, if we think that having kingdom impact is a young man or a young woman's game, again, just look at Daniel. The faith of this elderly man going into a place that will absolutely destroy him as he's sentenced to death. Now, apparently one night is the minimum sentence because that next day, Uh, Darius, he doesn't wake up because it says he didn't sleep, but he runs to him. And he starts screaming and yelling, Daniel, Daniel, did your God deliver you? Has he been able to deliver you from the mouth of lions? Probably expecting silence. Daniel's name, we find out, means God is my judge. And we see it on full display here because he's judged. And in a seemingly untroubled, non-anxious reply. He says, I'm great. I'm good, O king. Live forever. God sent an angel and shut their mouths, the lion's mouths. They have not harmed me because I was found, I was judged. I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. None. He starts preaching. 
right? In the midst of this lion's den, I'm like, dude, just get out and then tell him. He's like, no, there's nothing to worry about here. The Lord has sustained me. And how? The key in this rescue is not what Daniel's done in the lion's den, but it's the angel who steps in and has the power to shut the lion's mouth. Is this just an angel? Could be. Is this the angel of the Lord, which might be a Christophany, which is an appearance of Christ before he ever comes as a child? We don't know. But whoever it is, they have the power to do this. And what we do see is that it's Daniel's faithfulness to God that got him thrown into the pit. But according to this last verse, it's his faith that got him out. And it's because he had trusted in God. He was brought out and no kind of harm was on him. It's important for us to remember that this isn't the first or the last time that God didn't prevent his people from being in the midst of harm, but he preserved them within it. It will not be the last time that he does that. This week, we asked our two oldest kids, hey, draw the story of Daniel, right? We want to see it from a kid's perspective. And when I first saw these, I immediately started praying that the Lord would give them math and business skills because this is just, this is not it, but... That's okay. They tried really hard. And I know these are probably self-explanatory, but they gave us a description too. So here on the left, we have the angry guard and the happy king who liked Daniel. And this is Daniel in a cave with a lion, right? Apparently he's waving at someone and the lion has no eyes, but I do, I do love this depiction. Then on the right side, we have Daniel getting thrown into the pit belly first And it was between two lions who were mad at each other. Y'all see, they're not looking at each other. (laughs) Then they saw Daniel and almost killed him, but the angel made the lion's mouth shut and asleep. And Daniel survived the end. Great story, right? The end, that's how it ends, right? In our kids' version, it does. In the PG version, we don't go to verse 24. We're like, yay, God, you, you saved Daniel. But Darius releases lex talionis. This is the law of retaliation, the law of retribution. This actually gets pulled from a biblical law in Deuteronomy. Um, So this had kind of become a common law that if you have someone who accuses someone else of a crime and it's found out that that person actually didn't do it, it was a false accusation, then the accuser gets the punishment that was due to that person had they been convicted. But the Persians, who obviously are not worshiping Yahweh, take that law up another level and say it's not just that person who's going to be destroyed. Takes all those official satraps, the people who had lied, and their children, and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces. And all God's children who read this had nightmares, right? It's like, wow. But that's part of the story. I had a young, young girl, I think she's a fourth grader, come up to me after the service and just say, hey, can you explain that more? Like, why would this king order the, all these people to die? So we processed that about the heart of these laws that were in that land at that time. But what it does show us is that, man, sin goes way beyond and affects more people than just the person who commits it. Something crazy Beautiful, I'd call it, happens right after this. Darius writes a new edict and a new decree that actually elevates Yahweh. It says, in my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And notice who he writes this to. And he ends up writing a worship song with it, basically. But it's 
to all the peoples, nations, and languages. Does that phrasing sound familiar to you? This is what God promised to happen to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 22, that I wanna bless you so that through you all the nations would be blessed. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst all the nations. The Great Commission in the New Testament, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. This is God's desire that all peoples would know who he is, and he even uses pagan rulers to make it happen, for people to know his power. And I think the reason that we're seeing Darius convert here, whether he converts to a faith in God, we don't fully know. Sure seems like it. But the reason that we're seeing it is because he's blown away at the power of this God and the way that he can powerfully answer prayers. Sometimes I think this is hard in America to comprehend, but this is one of the best ways for people to know and experience who God is, to see his followers pray things that have no reason coming true except only by the power of God and seeing him move in powerful ways. So it had me thinking, what are my prayers of faith? Like if people were to judge God or or gain a picture of who God is based on the things that I pray and the way that he answers those, what would they think of him? How big would he be? How small would he be? What are those prayers? To me, the heart of the the story of Daniel 6 doesn't take place in the lion's den, but a few verses before in 10 through 12 where he's praying. And the reason I say that is because early in the book, we see this young teenager who resists um, the indoctrination process into this new culture. In the lion's den, we see this elderly man who is firm in his faith and unwavering to his faithfulness in God. But 6, 10 through 12 gives us a glimpse into those in-between years because it says not only did Daniel go to pray that day, but as he had previously done. This is who he was. You don't just arrive at that kind of faith. It develops over time in a relationship with God. And he consistently invites his people into what he's doing to pray. And what if, what if a movement is incubating somewhere in our city or in our neighborhoods or our apartment complexes, or in our workplaces, or in our homes, or in our own hearts, and God is just waiting on us to pray them. And he's inviting us into that. As his followers, we should write these down and and track them and celebrate them, whether it's praying them as individuals or families or roommates or community groups to go, God, here's where we're asking you to move. And watch where he does and watch where it seems like he doesn't. You know, as I think about prayers of faith for our church, there's lots of them that we pray as elders, as staff, as community group leaders. But here are a couple of them. That we would continue to see the people of our city in every neighborhood and apartment complex find life in Jesus. And that God would use you to introduce them. That the weight of this is not built on staff and pastoral ministry, but on the people of God equipped to follow him wherever you go that we would reach the nations through our city so that all races, nationalities, ages would find Fellowship Bentonville a safe place to know Jesus, to belong, to grow, to serve, to multiply the gifts that God has given us, that relationships would be mended where they're broken, that sin would be confessed where it's hidden, that God would do a miracle each week in the parking and traffic issue. And I said, we're gonna pray boldly, and somebody did, because a few weeks ago, It was one of the worst days we've had out there. And someone rolled in to early childhood, checking in their kids and 
one of the workers said, how did y'all find out about us? And they said, well, we live in Oklahoma. And we were driving home and saw this long line of cars and thought, this must be something worth going to. So we showed up. <laughs> God can answer prayers, people. Like, and I know that's a silly example, but what an example that God can do things that we never thought that he would do or move in ways that we would never think that he could. This would be a great place to stop and to have us pray and think through some of these, um, but I've still got a couple minutes left and I'm not wasting them. So I want to reveal something to you that the Lord showed me in my personal study as I was uh, leading up to this, and it kind of blew me away. I, I started noticing a flow just even in Daniel chapter six. And here's some of the observations that I saw of Daniel that he was distinguished above all, that jealousy and fear stirred up a death plot against him, but people could find no actual ground for complaint, no error or fault was found in him. He faithfully prayed in times of trouble. The ruler at the time finds him innocent but can do nothing. He's sentenced to death, sealed in a tomb with a stone, and in there deals with the agent of death and comes out alive. Do you see the beauty of God as like an orchestrator of story throughout scripture? You can take these very same things and find New Testament references to Jesus' walk to the cross, that he was distinguished above all. Jealousy and fear stirred up a death plot against him, but they could find no ground for complaint. No error or fault was found in him. He faithfully prayed in times of trouble to his father. The rulers then find him innocent, but do nothing. He's sentenced to death, sealed in a tomb with a stone, but deals with the agent of death and comes out alive. And as I was reading this, I'm like, my goodness, what does Daniel have to do with us today or the story of Jesus? Everything. And that's why even when we teach an Old Testament book, we put the cross on full display to remember who we serve and why. But I found a problem in this comparison. And it was in 6.23. And I read it and I was like, oh, that doesn't check out. It says this, Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in God. Yeah, there's a comparison of Jesus as Daniel and an unjust punishment. But Jesus doesn't come out without harm. We do. And so I started to see there's a narrative shift here where Jesus goes as being maybe having Daniel foreshadowing, to, he trades places with us. And where does he go? I think he's still there. You remember the angel that steps in and has the power to shut the mouths of lions and to deal with the agent of death. That's him. And he allows us to escape unharmed. But the big difference is Jesus, who has the power to shut the mouths of lions, doesn't in this situation. He opens them and they feast and they devour, and they satisfy the appetite of death through a perfect sacrifice. And you may go, that is like graphic. Yeah. And I don't know that that does it anywhere close to justice. This hit me, like the weight of the gospel in Daniel 6 hit me so hard this week in my office. I was bawling, praying that no one would enter because I'm like, I don't want people to see me like this. But it was just this weight of like, what a savior, what a friend that to allow us to step out holy and blameless simply by our trust being in him. 
you can even back up and see a little glimpse of it in 22, where Daniel says, my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that I wouldn't be harmed and I was found blameless. We know that our God sent his son to open them, to take on our fault so that we, we could be found blameless because we weren't. Y'all, this is what we do here as believers on this earth. This is the gospel. These are the reasons that we give up our lives to follow Jesus, that when we wake up and say, man, is it worth it today to do this or to act this way? Absolutely, because it was worth it for him to step in and take on the death that we deserved, the punishment that we deserved, so that in faith we might be found blameless and harmless. I wanna allow us in this last worship time just to sit in that. And there are, I guarantee you, many different emotions in here. Um, a lot of times the gospel, when it becomes clear to me, brings me to joy, and other times it brings me to sorrow. And both are appropriate. So I don't wanna over-orchestrate what happens in these next couple of songs, but I do wanna provide you with a chance to allow the Lord to work in your heart, whether that's through sitting, in contemplation, kneeling, in prayer, gathering with someone next to you to pray. We have communion always every week, if y'all didn't know that, available in the back. There's not a ton, but if that's something that you wanna do in this moment of worship to go experience that with the Lord, do it. If it's to stand and to worship and to proclaim his goodness and his glory because of what he's done, we give you freedom to do that. But together we, we allow God to change us even today, as we take on the goodness of what he's done on our behalf.
sing out these words death could not hold you the veil tore before you let's declare this out death could not hold you the veil tore before you you silenced the bows of sin and grace in the heavens
the voices of sin and shame and death that continue to try to speak into our life and heart stand silenced in the roar of approval from God on high to his son, Jesus Christ, who satisfied our debt. As we praise his name as a church and as a family, it's a reminder I just wanna hold on to uh, this weekend. Hey, if you're in need of prayer or a hug like I am after that, we have a prayer team who's standing in front of the baptismal who would love to pray over you uh, and spend some time loving on you. If, if this is your first time here or your first couple of times here, we have a newcomers gathering in the FSM room. You go out of these doors and take a right. We would love to just say hello, invite you into what God is doing um, in this place. And finally, as you leave, let me read Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 over us. And uh, notice the language of being holy and blameless because of Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So I pray that as we leave, that we will walk in the joy and peace, knowing that we follow a Savior who satisfied death, who shut the, who was devoured by, by the lion so we wouldn't have to, and that we can, uh, we can live in the freedom of being called blameless and holy in his sight because of his sacrifice on our behalf. We love you, fellowship. God bless you. We will see you next week.